started digging into the book of Daniel. And as I do most every Wednesday night, we're going to go back and do a little bit of recap. And, and here's why I do the recap every Wednesday. One, if you're not in a D group, if you're an adult and you're not in a D group or in a committee meeting around here, this is the place to be, which means we always get new people every week. And, uh, and I always hate to walk into the middle of something and not know where they've been and where they're going and, and feel like I missed something. So I never want anyone to feel like they've missed something. I want you to be able to come in and wherever you're at and pick right up. So we always recap for that reason. But I also always recap because it helps you remember more. It helps you remember better. And, uh, <clears throat> and if we don't remember what we're studying, then we're really kind of spinning our wheels when we're studying. So, And they won't let me give you a test or anything like that. So... So I just have to recap. That's what we have to do. So let's do a little quick recap because we didn't get very far in Daniel last week. We are studying the book of Daniel, as you can see from the slide. This is probably one of the simplest, easiest uh, slides we've done on, on a book of the Bible is Daniel. And, and you can see this just reminds you of the story. This is the story we almost always think about in the book of Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. And so this is, this is a simple, easy slide to remember Daniel by. We said Daniel was the last of the four major prophets. The last of the four, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Daniel is a whole lot easier to wade through than the rest of the major prophets. For one, it's a shorter book than the rest of them. The rest of them were like 50 chapters, 60 chapters. Daniel's 12. And the first half of the book is really more historical and more narrative. So it's always easier to weed through, wade through a book that's more narrative and more story than it is prophecy and, and all kinds of things you can get tangled up in. So, so that's made it a little bit easier. We talked a little bit about Daniel. We said Daniel was one of the, the upper echelon, if you will, one of the, the royal family, one of the, the wisdom people, one of the higher social economic people, if you will, that got deported to Babylon in the first deportation. Remember when Babylon took over Jerusalem, they didn't automatically destroy it completely. They just took over Jerusalem and then they exported out all the higher ups into Babylon to retrain them, if you will. And uh, so ba Babylon gets the, the upper people in the first deportation. They get Daniel, they get three of his friends, they also get Ezekiel. The book we just studied before, Ezekiel winds up being in the first group of, of exiles that go to, uh, to Babylon. So Daniel gets carried off to Babylon, and he's a young boy probably. He's probably, we don't know for sure, but he's probably in the age of 14 or so when he gets carried off into Babylonian captivity. And, uh, and Daniel is, is about the only other guy you can find in Scripture that that kind of holds a candle to Daniel is Joseph. There's a lot of similarities, but, and we won't go into them this evening, but there's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Daniel. Lots of similarities. And they are the two people in Scripture that you really can't find anything bad said about them. Both very men of great integrity. They go through lots of trials. Um, so it's nice to kind of take those and compare those. So Daniel gets carried off in that first deportation with his three friends and a lot of other people. I gave you this uh, simple outline for the book of Daniel. The first half of the book, 
The first six chapters is simply Daniel's experience. It's more historical. It's more narrative. These are the things he goes through. And then the last half of the book is Daniel's visions. And that's where it gets into a little more prophecy. And, uh, you know, anytime, like when we studied Ezekiel, the visions can get pretty strange and you have to kind of sort through them and, and, and figure them out. So Daniel gets a little harder in the last half of the book than he does in the first half of the book. So we started off last week with Daniel's experiences. And we started giving you, in this first half of the, of the book of Daniel, we started giving you the major mile markers the major things that you're going to find in Daniel's experiences. And we started with this. We said that his three Hebrew friends and himself were taken to Babylon. They were given brand new identities, so to speak. They took away their names, their Hebrew names, and gave them Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were Daniel, Hananiah, and I should have fixed that typo too. Still put, got the typos in there. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's not Hannah and Michael, okay? It's... Typos. Uh, but he gave them Babylonian names because their Hebrew names had to do with God, their God. And so one of the things the Babylonians are trying to do is basically take away their identity, take away their heritage, take away their identity, wipe the slate clean with them, and then reprogram them is what they're trying to do. So he gives them Babylonian names, which has to do with Babylonian gods. And so Daniel is called Belteshazzar, and Hananiah is called Shadrach. Mishael is called Meshach, and Azariah is called Abednego. So they're given these names. And then they're taken under the tutelage of the royal king. And they're taken into the palace under the tutelage for three years. For three years, they're taught and trained in Babylonian culture and Babylonian uh, ways and Babylonian gods and, and everything else. And they're also fed the king's food and his wine and everything. They're basically grooming them to be in the upper echelons in Babylon. And so, so to do that, you've got to kind of reprogram them. You've got to take away their heritage. And uh, you, know, you know how it was when you got married. You remember that. Kind of, you know, you just kind of got to forget all the stuff you knew and you got to start all over again, right? This is what they're doing with, with Daniel and his friends when they get there. And so the first thing that happens in Daniel's experience is they have this arrival into Babylon. And uh, then you have this first dream. Let me back up. I think I jumped slides there. The arrival into Babylon. That was the first thing. And uh, when they get there, like I said, they're trying to reprogram them. So they give them new names. They give them a new diet. They give them everything. The problem is Daniel purposes in his heart. He sets his mind to not lose his, for lack of a better word, his biblical integrity, his integrity with God. And so... The diet that they wanted to feed him did not fit with the dietary rules that he was brought up under the law and the Ten Commandments and the Torah. And so Daniel has to figure out a way, how do I keep my integrity without really hacking everybody off in the process? And so he goes to the, to the one who's overseeing them and says, hey, I really would rather stick to my own diet than this diet of the king's food. And the overseer says, you know what, I can't do that because if you start looking punier and, and less healthy than the rest of them, then the king will have my head, you know. So I've got, I've got steak, I've got skin in this game, and I can't let you do that. Well, then Daniel didn't fuss with him. He goes to another person under him and says, hey, let's just give me a week. Just give me a week. Give us a week. See what happens. And then if at the end of the week, 
then you can decide. He didn't say at the end of the week, then I'll eat whatever you want me to eat. He just said at the end of the week, you can decide. So at the end of the week, they eat just vegetables for, for all practical purposes. And at the end of a week or so, they look better than everyone else. And so they get to keep their integrity. They keep following God's dietary laws. And God blesses them and, and gives them great favor with the king. And the king places them in positions of high authority because they're just wise. And Daniel's given this ability to discern visions and dreams. That key, that verse is very key because in the very next chapter, you get Nebuchadnezzar having this dream. We started, we waded into this last week. We didn't finish it. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and it disturbs him greatly. And so he calls all his magicians and wise men and educators and all these people together and he basically says, I need to know the meaning of this dream. And they say, well, great, tell us the, me tell us the dream and we'll give you the meaning. He said, no, if you're really all that, I mean, if, if, if I'm really going to believe your PR that you're that wise, then you tell me what I dreamed first. If you can tell me what I dreamed without me telling you that, then I can trust that your interpretation is going to be well. And uh, they can't do it. And they basically said, you know, no man alive can do that. And basically the king orders all the wise men and the seers to be killed. And the problem with that is Daniel is one of those people. And so that means Daniel and his friends get killed also. That doesn't fit with Daniel's plan that well. And so he goes to the king and says, give me a certain amount of time and I will figure out your dream and its interpretation. So the king gives him some time, which is, is a phenomenal that a Hebrew slave can actually negotiate with the king and get more time when his own seers and magicians couldn't do that. But Daniel does. And he tells his three friends to pray, and they pray, and God reveals the dream, and he reveals the interpretation. And that's kind of where we were at last time when we met. Uh, so let's just pick up with the dream again. Uh, Let's see. Let's go with. Uh, let's go to uh, chapter two, verse thirty-one. We'll just kind of run through this because we talked about this last week, so we won't spend a whole lot of time. You saw, O king, this is Daniel telling the king what his dream was. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it struck the image at its feet of iron and clay, and they broke into pieces. And, all, and then the iron and clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of a summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that there was not a trace of them could be found. But the stone struck the image. Be, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, so the king has this vision of this great big image, this statue, if you will. It's got a head of gold, and then each part breaks down. It starts with a head of gold, and then it looks to the arms and chest are silver. And then you go down further, and it's the, the middle section and the thighs are bronze, the legs are iron, the feet are iron and clay. And so then this rock that's hewn not by human hands, which is a big clue here. 
comes and strikes the statue at the feet, it all crumbles away and falls down, and then the wind blows it away. But the rock that struck it grows up into this huge mountain. This is the image, this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And I'm trying to remember, but I don't think last night we even interpreted this thing, got that far. So here's where we'll pick up fresh and new. Look at chapter 2, and let's go on and, and read verse 36. This was the dream, Daniel says, now we will tell, you, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king of kings, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given. I want to back up and I want you to hear this. Because at first it sounds like Daniel's really blowing wind up Nebuchadnezzar's skirt here, but he's not. Listen to it again. You, O king, the king of kings, okay, it sounds like he's really tooting his horn for him, but listen to what he says, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. This is important. This theme keeps running through the book of Daniel over and over and over. To whom the God of glory, uh, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he, meaning God, has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air of heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So it's basically saying God has made you this phenomenal king this you rule over everything you have power you have glory you have might like has never been seen before god has given that to you and in your dream you are the head of gold he says okay and then he goes on verse 39 another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you this is the this next section of the statue and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth and there shall be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. That would be the legs of the statue because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it breaks and crushes all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw mixed, iron mixed with soft clay. And so he goes on and talks about this. And then verse 44, and in, the days of the, and in those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And it shall break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hands, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So Daniel's basically saying what God has done in this dream has given you kind of a timeline uh, this kind of prophetic, eschatol eschatological. Whew. Sounds good, doesn't it? Eschatological. I have no idea what it means. No, I do know what it means. He's giving you this timeline, and it starts off with your kingdom, which is the head of gold, and then it progresses through another kingdom, and another kingdom, and another kingdom, and then ten kingdoms, but eventually, God's going to destroy all of those and set up his own. And, and that is, that's the interpretation he gives them. Now, people have said all kinds of things. People have said that this 
If Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, the next one is the Medo-Persian. You know, Medes and the Persians join together and take over. You actually see that in the book of Daniel. Uh, There'll be a place where Nebuchadnezzar dies, his son takes over, and the son dies because the Medes and the Persians come in and take over. And so that's it. Others have said when you go down further, the thigh portion of the statue, that's the Grecian Empire. Others have said the legs and the feet are the Roman Empire. And that the stone that's not cut out by hands is actually the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ when he returns. Uh, Look at Nebuchadnezzar's response to all of this. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So what about this scene? What is it about Nebuchadnezzar's response that seems surreal to you? What seems odd about his response? To bow down to Daniel. Yes! The Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the, the mightiest king ever, even Daniel said God had given him this great power over everything and everybody, bows down to a Hebrew slave. That's kind of striking, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that kind of catch you off guard a little bit? How does that happen? It happened before. Hmm? Tell us. Joseph. Joseph. Joseph, exactly. Another similarity between Daniel and Joseph. The next time you watch the news and you get really distraught over what's happening and feel like nobody has any control over what's happening, you should go back and read this. Because a Babylonian king bows down to a Hebrew slave. That's only a God thing. Only God can do that. Which is interesting. The Babylonian king, what else does he do that seems odd? He gives Daniel authority. Not only does he bow down to a Hebrew slave, he gives Hebrew slaves authority over the people that conquered him. What about this response? Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Isn't it interesting that the Babylonian king who knows nothing about God is holding God up in high esteem and praising Him? Does any of this seem likely to you? I mean, if you'd never heard this story before and you're starting this story, would this sound likely to you? No. None of this is likely. 
And here's the problem with us reading the story. We have read the story so often we become way familiar with it. But this is so highly unlikely. Why is that important for us? I mean, why am I making such a big deal out of this anyway? Besides, it's just me. God still does that stuff. We act like He only did it then. But these are different times and God just doesn't work this way anymore. Really? You know the difference between this and these times? I don't get to look in specifically in a small portion of these times like I do when I'm looking in the Scripture. The only difference between this time and these times is God's given us some sections where He's really kind of given us a microscope and said, let me show you this in depth here, what's happening. We, just, we don't get to see that here. How many of you have been through something in life and, and it made no sense to you and you couldn't figure out why it was happening and it just seemed wrong and you got 5, 10, 15 years down the future and you look back and went, Oh, okay, this makes sense now. I get it. It's the same way. This is the same deal. And so, if God can take a Hebrew slave, get the king of Babylon, the superpower of the day, to bow down to this slave, to proclaim his God as being God of gods, and give him power over the very people that conquered him, what makes us think that God is having trouble with our problems? That's what we have to see here. Yes? Oh, I love that. In my eyes. opinion, God is, has put someone in authority over our country who was a very unlikely candidate, but we have to realize God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Yeah, and God is sovereign, and, and, and that works whether you like the guy or you don't. You know, I mean, it really kind of levels the playing field. Whether you think you got the right guy in there or you didn't get the right guy in there, really doesn't make any difference if God is sovereign like we say He is. And he can work with anybody, even those who don't believe in him or don't care about him. And, and it should take some worry off of us. Yes, ma'am. Isn't this comparable to um, the North Korean bowing down Yeah, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the ruler of North Korea bowing down and worshiping God. Yeah, that's, that's, you're right. That's probably kind of a comparable picture if you wanted to put it in everyday terms in today's terms very much like that yes i was just going to subject the matter of how often do we pray like how many people pray for the north korean dictator how many people pray for donald trump you know how many people pray in a way that really shows love and faith instead of complaining or irritated or judgmental you know like how many people are really truly honestly praying in love for these yes she, she asks you know makes you wonder how many are really praying for Donald Trump or probably for anybody rather than just complaining about him and, and the, here's one thing about Daniel that you'll see over and over and over again Daniel is a slave to this pagan king who knows nothing about God cares nothing about God and and he doesn't say well you don't know what you're talking about and you don't know God so I don't have to listen to you and I don't have to work with you and I don't he doesn't he works with this pagan king with such integrity that he gains favor in the eyes of this king. 
Sometimes I think this is what we're missing as Christian people in this day and age. We, we are known more for what we hate and what we're against and who we don't like than for being people of integrity that cause a lost world to go, wow, there's something about them. What is that? Yes, I saw a hand over here. Yes. I was just going to say that. I mean, and I think one thing we can't, can't get lost on the fact is that Nebuchadnezzar had a God that he prayed to. He had several, actually. It wasn't, it's not that he didn't believe, he just didn't believe in the Jewish God. But So I, I think what we see here is saying that he's saying to Daniel, your God is great. As in almost like noticing that your God is greater than my God. Yes. And um, just, just recognizing that. That's a great point. Nebuchadnezzar is not necessarily saying, hey, your God's the only God. Because he still has a bunch of gods. He's just saying, hey, I'm willing to put him in here with mine, and I think he's a cut above those. But he didn't jettison everything else. Yeah, and that's what you'll see in, in a couple other times in the book of Daniel is, is Nebuchadnezzar is more than willing to encompass Daniel's God. Every time he does, though, it's because God's done something phenomenal. God's done this big magic trick that makes Nebuchadnezzar go, whoa. And so, yeah, he's willing to take him in. Uh, but you'll see that it doesn't always stick. And so, and you'll find that in this culture too. There, you'll find a lot of people that are willing to say, oh yeah, I believe in God, bring them on. But he's bringing them on with a lot of other stuff, which is what, Daniel, which, what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. So, so it's just odd. At, at, so at the end of this chapter where God has, and he puts it in scripture where he has Nebuchadnezzar bowing down and, and to Daniel and making Daniel an authority over his people and, and praising him. Why did God write this in here? I mean, we could have just gone on to the next story. Why did God put this in here? Well, yeah, if he didn't put it in there, I wouldn't have had all this to talk about in the last few minutes, would I? Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. But I'm a firm believer that Scripture is not random, that there's a purpose. And if something gets put in here at this place, there's a purpose for it being there in that place. Any ideas? Happens again in Revelation. Happens again in Revelation. Yeah. I, when, especially in these books, these kind of books, the first chapter or two is always setting up the the theme of the book, the, what this book is going to be about. And so right off the bat in the book of Daniel, you have Daniel who's in this, this exiled country, this culture he doesn't know anything about that's so foreign to him, that's completely against his God. And, and you find him saying, how can I live in this culture and be true to my God and yet still work with the people I'm around? And how can I make that happen? And how can God get the glory in the process? How can I maintain my integrity and yet still love and serve people in such a way that God gets the glory? That's the theme of this book, or at least the first half. But that should be our theme. It's not, our, our theme shouldn't be, how can I isolate myself from everybody out there that is just so crazy I don't understand? A theme should be, how can I walk through this really weird and different world that I don't agree with a lot and maintain my integrity with God and yet still minister in such a way that I earn the right to be heard, I earn favor, 
that's, how can, I, how can I walk through this world and be more ministering and less militant? This is Daniel. And, and it gets set up in the first two chapters. Okay, now based upon this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has just had, it's going to be really weird that we go to this. Nebuchadnezzar, we've had the first dream. Now we're talking about the golden image. So, look at chapter 3. Read chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth was 6 cubits and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so he sets up this image and it's about 90 feet tall and about 9 feet wide and it probably was an image of him. It was probably him, looked like him, made of pure gold. Why do you think he did this? especially after this last dream that just got interpreted for him, why would he then go and do this? Hmm? Ego. You will find out Nebuchadnezzar has plenty of ego. He has lots of ego. It doesn't seem like a weird thing to do after proclaiming that God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And then to set up a 90-foot statue? Yes? It just kind of reminds me how even Christians will come and they will see the glory of God, but some of them don't really have a personal relationship with God. And, you know, you can look and say, you know, God has done mighty things. And many pagans who believe in a God, they believe, you know, that God created the world and whoever he is is amazing. But I don't think Nebuchadnezzar ever had that personal relationship, of course, with Jesus Christ. And so it wasn't something that transcended. He was just kind of an emotional, egotistical, prideful person who recognized, wow, that's God, but how can God serve me the next day? He can't. So I'm going to put this golden image and have people worship me. So you're saying that he's a little bit like the people that followed Jesus for the miracles, but not for the surrender. Okay, yeah, I could see that. Because like we said, Nebuchadnezzar brings the God of Daniel kind of into his stable, but he's still got all these other gods going on too. So you have that, that he's not really following God. He's just added God in. You have the fact that he's got this huge ego. Show he's still in control. I mean, after all, the image, the, the dream that he had said that he was the head of gold. You know, so he's kind of dovetailing off that image. Hey, if I'm the head of the gold, I'm just going to make the whole statue gold. You know, because, because in that dream he had, with each successive kingdom, it got weaker and weaker and weaker. So, in his dream, he's kind of top dog to start with. So he sets up this image, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and uh, perhaps he's just kind of going off of the interpretation of Daniel's dream. I don't really know. But... But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with this, this kind of gaudy self-image of himself. He goes further. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, sent together the satraps and prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and justices and magistrates and all of the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Then, and it keeps going over this over and over and over. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all of the officials of the pro- <coughs> excuse me, province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that, King, that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proudly proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, loves list. This guy loves list. Horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harps, bagpipes, and every kind of music. The peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, if you remember the past teachings on story, if you remember the past teachings on story, you know that every good story has to have a problem. It's not a good story if it doesn't have a problem to overcome. If you go to the movie and you plunk down, gracious, $18, $20, whatever it is, to, and that's without popcorn and drinks, and you sit down at the movie and the movie comes on and, and John and Betty immediately see each other, they fall in love, they have a good life, they never have any struggles and they live happily ever after. You're going to feel cheated out of your money. Because every good story has to have a problem to overcome. And so, up till now, everything's gone pretty well. But here's the problem. What is the problem with this? He knows Daniel's not going to bow down. Daniel, he, and he's probably not even thinking about Daniel, actually. Or he's thinking, well, Daniel should be like me. I've took in Daniel's gods. He can take in mine. I mean, we're just all one big happy family. Could be. Or he may not even be thinking about Daniel, because Nebuchadnezzar thinks about himself mostly, you'll find out. Yes? The question I have, why is Nebuchadnezzar building this huge statue? Why is the king building this huge statue? And that's kind of what we talked about uh, it could be because he's just launching off of Daniel's interpretation of his dream. But look at nations, every kind of musical instrument, which is a symbol of all kinds of nations. Mm-hmm. So this is a unity thing. It could be a unity thing, or it could be the fact that Babylon had conquered everybody. They had conquered everybody. So it's, and remember when Babylon conquers a, a people, Basically, they try to take away their identity and they try to kind of wipe the slate clean and make them all like Babylonians. So they've conquered all these people. Uh, it wasn't just the Hebrews that they'd conquered. They conquered a whole lot of other people. So it wasn't just the Hebrews that got brought into exile either. It was a lot of other nations. So there was all kinds of nations represented there. But even though you want to take away a people's kind of identity, you still want them to know that you're the leader. You still want them to know that, hey, we can be great. I'll be really kind to you, but never forget I'm the ruler. And there's not a better way to, to determine who's the ruler than to set up a 90-foot statue of yourself, is there? Yes? God is sovereign. And He knows the ending from the beginning, which is, which is another good reason not to read these as familiar as we do. 
to try to read them as if you've never seen them before. Because we get to be the same way. I've read this story so often, I know how it ends, and so I don't ask questions and I don't think through it. Exactly. Yes? Uh, it's, it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar, so right after the dream, it's, it's oh, I'm the golden head. God chose me. I'm so amazing. You all need to see how amazing I am. And responding that way versus, you know, I think what, what Scripture teaches, if, if you're chosen, you're not chosen because you have any value. And you need to humble yourself, and you need to recognize, recognize who God is and, and, and the fact that he did choose you for something. So, so Nebuchadnezzar thought, hey, God's already said it in the dream. I'm the golden boy, you know. And, and you'll find out as we go through and talk about Nebuchadnezzar some more. Humility was not one of his strong suits. He really was not a humble guy at all. And, and so the problem is, like was said, even whether Nebuchadnezzar thought about it or not, the problem is Daniel's not going to bow down. So that's going to be a problem. Or the three Hebrew children, rather, in this case, are not going to bow down. So verse, thir- verse 7 makes this big deal about peoples and nations and languages. Okay, it's inserted in there like we were talking about to realize that, that there was this multicultural thing going on and they were all asked to do the same thing, to kind of believe the same thing, to follow after the same thing, to worship the same thing. There is not much better picture of today than that. There really isn't. And... and and in this day where there's not only this plethora of views and plethora of, of things and people and gods to worship, but it's all publicized at nauseum over social media and internet, et cetera, et cetera, we find ourselves in the same position as Daniel. How are we going to manage this? How are we going to respond to this? And so God's people have to maintain their integrity in the face of all of this. And so here is the problem. The situation comes to head starting in verse 8. So look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and, here's the key word, maliciously accused the Jews. In other words, the, the so-called wise men and magicians, the Chaldeans, uh, they saw this as a way to get to the Jews. Because Why would they want to get to the Jews anyway? Hmm? They were in leadership positions. Yes, yes. These are, these are the king's wise men, and the king's put a Hebrew slave over them. So this is payback time. This is exactly what's going on. This is payback time. Verse 9, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, listen how they sell this too. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, here we go again, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So they're setting this up. They're, they're, they're backing Nebuchadnezzar into a corner, so to speak, with this. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they have, they have woven this well. Uh, they, there's no way. I mean, they've played to the king's ego, the whole nine yards. And so look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, listen to this, in furious rage, you're going to hear Nebuchadnezzar do this 
more than once. In furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Does it not strike you weird that he didn't just have them thrown into the furnace to start with? He'd already made the decree. Why not just throw them into the furnace and start? Well, I mean, he could have done that by remote control. He could have been in the palace and said, go find them and throw them in the fire. Everything he does has to be a spectacle. Everything he does has to be a spectacle. And plus, he has put these men in high esteem. And so, it, you know, for him to save a little face, he's got to do a one-on-one with them too. And so even here, they get a little more grace than everybody else would have gotten because everybody else had just been thrown in the fire. But the king has them brought to him. And uh, so they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now he gives them another chance. This is interesting. You know, to defy a king's orders is usually, that's it. But he gives them a second chance. Now, if you are ready, when you hear, here we go, the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, here's the ego. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? There's the ego. You'll see it other places too. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It's an interesting way to respond. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar has two major weaknesses, aside from not being a follower of, of the true God. His anger, you see that in verse 13, in a furious rage, and his ego, you see that in verse 15. So what does when you look at verse 17 and 18, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. What do those two verses tell you about faith? These are deep waters too, by the way. What do okay, so regardless of whether he saved him or not, they were still going to have faith in God. Okay? What else does it tell you about faith? Hmm? It's not about the outcome. Matter of fact, the, the problem is that we often run into is we want to have faith in the outcome rather than just faith in God. They had faith in God, but they didn't know what the outcome was going to be. That's different than the way we usually think of faith. I personally, and that's probably just because I'm a little twisted this way, but I personally like a faith that can have an if in it. 
that I can have faith in God and still go, but if it doesn't work out, because I don't know. I don't know how God's going to do stuff. We want to have faith that if we do things right or we pray right or, or, or whatever, that God will make the outcome turn out right. But you know, that's more about us wanting to control things than it is, is about us trusting God. It really is. Uh, if I can figure out the right formula, then I can make things come out right all the time. And that's just about me taking care of me and kind of controlling the situation rather than let God control and me not know. Does this make you as uncomfortable as it did me when I first started digging into this? Because this is really uncomfortable stuff. To know that I can be a strong person of faith and still not know if it's going to work out or not. Or at least the way I want it to work out. Uh, but that's it. It's the way you want it to work out. Absolutely. But we don't always know what God's purpose is. It is. And that's where you have faith in God rather than what he's going to do. You know? Because, face it, if I was writing this book, Jesus would have never died on the cross because that just does not make sense, right? And so if I was having faith, I mean, the Jews had faith that, that, that God was going to restore the kingdom to them. And they had it pictured in their head how it was going to happen. The Messiah was going to come in. He was going to take over the Romans, give them their country back, and they were going to rule and reign again. And it didn't happen that way. So if you put your faith in the outcome and then the outcome doesn't work the way you want to, you just lost your faith. If you put your faith in the God who's over the outcomes and you trust his character more than how he's going to do things, then you're going to be okay. This is a huge lesson in faith for us. And we tend to think, oh, well, they had faith in God, so they didn't burn up. That's not the lesson of faith. The lesson is they had faith in God, and so they were willing to go in whether they burn up or not. That's a bigger deal. It's a much bigger deal for us. Uh, here's another thing, though, it teaches you about faith. It teaches you about well, let's look first before we do this. Let's look at God's intervention. Let's not skip the intervention. So let's go to verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was, here it is, filled with fury. And the expression of his face changed. He was so incensed and angry, it contorted his face. That's how mad he was. His expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it's usually heated. Now, I just find that silly. I mean, if you're going to burn up, you're going to burn up. What difference is it if it's hotter or not, you know? Once the flesh starts melting off your bones, it doesn't make any difference if it's seven times hotter. I just find that odd. But he's so incensed that he's not rational. That's how angry he is. So he orders it seven times more than it's usually heated. Verse 20. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These, uh, then these men were bound in their cloaks and tunics and hats and other garments and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Why does it let you know that they still had their cloaks and their hats and everything on? Why? Hmm? They'll catch fire quicker. Yeah. 
Yeah, we don't, if you're going to burn somebody up, you want to make sure they're good and burnt, don't you? You know, and, and he's just doing this all the way. And uh, they were thrown into the furnace, verse 22. Because of the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Which is interesting. The king was so angry he was willing to burn up his own guys. To burn up three guys that weren't going to fight him anyway. And the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And, and he probably should be. Very astonished. Uh, let's just keep reading. I was going to stop there, but let's keep reading. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. And he declared, declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God's. Notice it's plural. It's not Son of God, but it's Son of God's, plural. Now, what does this story tell you about God's intervention? They're bound. What they were bound with was burned up. Not them. Say it again. What they were tied up with was burned up, not them. What they were tied up with was burned up, not them. Okay? Miraculous. His intervention is miraculous. Yes? God's presence is with you even in times of persecution. So his intervention is actually in his presence. Okay. Yes? Yes? So you're saying that God's intervention was as much for Nebuchadnezzar as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay. Fire had no power? Mm-hmm. Didn't even smell like they were in a fire. Here, here's what it tells me about God's intervention. God didn't intervene before the trial. He intervened in the trial. That does not make me happy. It just doesn't. I want God to intervene before the trial. Thank you. I don't want to go through the trial. I want, to be, I want him to intervene up front so I don't have to go through it. But God's intervention in this and in a lot of other places in Scripture is not before the trial. It's in the midst of it. Psalms 23 does. Pardon? Pardon? Psalms 23. 
Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Absolutely. Not walk around it, not walk over it, not just wait till it goes away. Though I walk through it. And, and sometimes we want God to do great things in our life, but we just don't want to go through the trials for him to do great things. And so we never, he never gets to do great things for us because his intervention is always in the trial, not before the trial. Look at the ultimate picture of that, the crucifixion. Same way. You know, I need to hurry up, or we're not even going to get out through one more chapter here, so... You know, we started chapter 3. We're going to be stuck in chapter 3. So let me finish chapter 3, okay? Yeah, Lord was with him. But, but, and we always say, you know, the Lord is with him through the fire. But he was with them before they got tossed in the fire. He was with them in the fire. He was with them when they came out of the fire. That is, go back to Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Not because God gets me out of the valley of the shadow of death, but because thou art with me. God is with me. It's God's presence with us that, that is there before the fire, in the fire, after the fire, in the next fire. You know, it's just his presence. So God's intervention is, again, it's in himself, not in what he does or doesn't do. Which is really hard for us to grasp. It, it really is. Have you ever looked at your kids sometime and thought, maybe not said it out loud, maybe you did say it out loud, but just thought, you know, I would like it if you just wanted to be with me, not milk me for everything I've got. You know? I'd like it if you just wanted to sit down and not need anything from me, but just wanted to be with me. Wouldn't it be so great instead of, okay, Dad, I'll hang out with you, but can we do this while we're doing this? Or can you give me this? Or yeah, if I have to sit with you, I will to get this car, but I'll, you know. It's in this presence. And so, really quickly, let's finish chapter 3. There's three testimonies that happen at the end of this chapter. There's the testimony of the three Hebrew children, there's a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. So let's look at the three Hebrew children. Verse 26, here's their testimony. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of these men. Their hair was not, uh, the hairs of her head were not singed. Their cloak was not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. I find it interesting that they came out of the trial the same way they went in, through. They went through the door into the fire. They come out of the fire the same way. And so their testimony is, and it's a big one, nothing happened to them. When they should have been burnt up, they weren't. Yes. Exactly. That's a good point. And so many times we go into trials bound, and one reason God leads us into the trial, as somebody said, is to burn off the, power, burn off the bondage. You know, burn off the ropes. Uh, so that's their testimony. Now let's look at the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's commandments and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. There's a big lesson in here for us. This is what we're to do. Trust him. Set aside the king's commandments or this world's commandments or cultural's commandments. Yield up our bodies and serve and worship him rather than anyone else. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Here it is, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what do you think is Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with God after all of this? He still just recognizes him as a God over the gods he knows. He's, He's still following the party tricks. Absolutely. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Because you don't see God, you don't see Nebuchadnezzar really saying anything about God when nothing's going on. There has to be something big going on. You know? God heals me of cancer and I just praise him and praise him and praise him and then my checkbook is overdrawn and I can't figure out why he forgot me. You know? That kind of thing. Yes? Uh, but, I, you know, I think in this, you see Nebuchadnezzar, you know, seeing the light, so to speak. But if you think parlor tricks, I mean, the church got started because I won't, I'm not going to say horror church, but obviously this this great this great act of God, which is the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and yes. that's what got people to be like, oh, you, you know, this is God. Yes. yes. Oh, so I mean, I don't know, and I mean, we see that a lot of places in Scripture too. I mean, parting the Red Sea. There's a lot of things where it takes a display of God's power for people to finally recognize that this is God. And this is Exactly, and just like was said over here, the big parlor trick that God was doing was to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Just like you mentioned, you know, the parlor trick of the resurrection, if you will, no, no offense intended, or, you know, Pentecost. Or, yeah, God does that, parting the Red Sea. The difference is, what do you do when you see the trick? And that's probably a bad way to say it, but, but you know what I mean. What do you do after you see the miracle? And how long do you keep doing that? That's the difference. The people that saw what happened on the day of Pentecost did it until they were tortured. They didn't just fly off the handle for a while and then go back to their own ways. So the difference is God will show all of us in a way that we see and can get it who he is and how he is and what he wants. He will show us all the parlor trick we need to see. The question is, what do we do with that? And is it a long-term life change or is it just a flash in the pan? And that's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and, and again, a good story sets up this juxtaposition, this antithetical relationship between characters. And this is the antithetical relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Daniel keeps his integrity no matter what. The king goes up and down and up and down. And so, if, if that's a continuum... Here's Nebuchadnezzar, who is as flighty as whatever he sees or experiences in the moment. And here's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they stay true to form no matter what's going on around them. Where am I at on this continuum?
That's what we all have to ask. Because chances are none of us are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. But we're all going to go through something that feels like it. And when we do, where will you be on that continuum? That's a hard question to ask. I'm, I'm not even sure I want to know the answer for me yet. Jesus made the statement that blessed were those who believe without seeing. Yes, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Yeah. But all of us need to see something. I think God's mindful of that. Uh, I think I'll just leave it there because we're about three minutes over. So let's pray. At this rate, I finally figured out now. I, I love this interaction, but I finally figured out that's why I can't make it through these books any faster than what I'm doing. I was feeling really guilty, but I'm not going to feel so guilty anymore, I don't think. I like this. I would rather take it slow and have this than just me preach at you. So let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this evening. I'm grateful for the interaction. I'm grateful for you allowing us to have your word. I'm grateful that we don't live in a country where having your word is illegal or life-threatening or threatening imprisonment. I'm just, I'm grateful. And I'm grateful that we get to open it up. But Father, forgive us when we have this privilege and we can open up your word and we don't. Or we open it up and we skim it or we open it up and close it and think just in the reading it, we, we've earned our points, so to speak. Uh, Father, you've given us a, a gift more precious than we can even realize, that your very heart and mind in print and in text for us. And help us to not take that as lightly as we do. Uh, and help us to leave here, Father, with those words and the things we've heard this evening kind of rooted in us. Help them not to just blow away with the next thing that's on our mind but keep them stuck in our head and our heart and so as we walk through the rest of this week that you will bring them back up and help us to think about them and how they apply to the situation we're facing and and be changed by it father and that's what we want more than anything else and we ask for that in jesus name amen Amen.